welcome to episode 12 of Canada's number one satirical diplomatic thriller, The Tar Sands Diplomat. The author, Keith Halliday, is podcasting it chapter by chapter. With five reviews on Amazon and a profile in the Hill Times, it might just take you telling one more friend to make it go viral. All we need is a like, tweet, or your fleet of spam bots. And now, here is Keith reading episode 12. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 13, The Canadian Delegation Arrives It was dawn on the day of battle. I prepared carefully that morning, putting on a fresh shirt, my favorite suit, and the boldest tie I owned. It was a gift from my sister, as part of her plan to cheer me up after Elizabeth left. My shoes were freshly polished. Like soldiers through the ages, I wondered if, when the moment came, I would have enough courage to do my duty and actually go to the airport and pick up the Can-Do Canada delegation. As I clicked the code to get into the mission, my thoughts were interrupted by Cornelia. She came teetering around the corner in her heels. It's a warning! From Intelligence Division! She cried, waving a piece of paper. We quickly gathered around as Cornelia paraphrased the incoming tell. Look! It says threat indications in Brussels are elevated from extreme green groups. Then down here, it says they may use the upcoming Can-Do Canada trade mission to further their own objectives. She began reading. We have no specific threats of imminent attack, but given loss of duty officer's briefcase with possible scheduling information, this message should be considered for operational and security purposes during Can-Do Canada. May I see that, please? I asked, slowly pulling the document from Cornelia's fingers. I read the operative paragraphs. Let's not panic, I said. All this says is that there are a lot of green groups in Europe, and they might be thinking about protesting Can-Do Canada. We knew that already. There's no evidence in here that Intelligence Division knows anything we don't know, or anyone who reads the newspapers, for that matter. And their warning is ridiculous. This message should be considered for operational and security purposes. Do they think we're completely unaware that asbestos and Frankenstein canola are controversial? But what about the duty officer's briefcase? asked Cornelia. They're right that the briefcase is missing. What could have been in the briefcase that makes it any easier for green extremists to find us? I asked. They're just raising issues so they can say they were right if anything ever happens. If we listened to every warning from Intelligence Division, we'd never leave our offices. McGregor makes an interesting point, said Kennedy. What was that story you told me about the Russian analysts in Intelligence Division? I was checking a book out of the department's library, and they were ahead of me in line, checking out a Fodor's Guide to Moscow. Not exactly confidence-inspiring, I said. But it's a warning! We should do something! said Cornelia. She didn't mean we should do something because she took the warning seriously. She meant that we had to be seen to have done something, so that if anything did happen, we could say we'd taken the warning seriously. I rolled my eyes. Kennedy was more practical. You're right, Cornelia. Work with Jim here from Security Division, and come up with some recommendations to update our security plan. Put them in writing, and we'll engage the ambassador. I watched as Cornelia and Sherlock walked away, Sherlock was asking her if the ambassador's driver took the same route to the official residence every day. I sighed. Kennedy and I climbed into the van for the airport. Wasn't it a bit of overkill to ask Sherlock to update the security plan? I asked her. He's going to spend hours coming up with schemes to give us all code names and change the door locks every five minutes. Cornelia was right. It was an official warning. Kennedy was using her official voice on me again. Come on. Sherlock should be investigating Julian's murder. This will distract him. We sat in silence as Kennedy ignored me. Wait, I said suddenly. Maybe there is a link. 
What if Julian was killed by Greens? And what if the leak did come from Tells in the duty officer's briefcase? Then they might have our itineraries and be targeting Candu Canada next. Maybe we should tighten security for Candu Canada. I reached for my Blackberry. McGregor, snapped Kennedy, surprisingly sharply. Stop complicating everything. You're the one who said not to panic. Let Cornelia and Jim get on with reviewing the security plan, and we'll focus on our jobs. I began to get cross with her. You're the one who has distracted Sherlock from Julian's murder. Having him and Cornelia sit in her office and update the security plan on paper won't help us if the Greens do attack. He needs to concentrate on Julian's murder, or he'll never finish his investigation. He has completely bought the call girl theory. I told him to keep in mind that it might be something else, related to, you know, some other topic like green extremists or some business deal linked to Can Do Canada issues. I should also tell him to go see some of the journalists who got that leaked tell. Kennedy pursed her lips and looked straight ahead. Can't you just work with a team for once, McGregor? She snapped. You're always trying to tie everyone up in details and dead ends and distractions. And what are you trying to achieve by tangling Julian's death up with other issues just before Can Do Canada? If PMO finds out that we got Can Do Canada tangled up with some scandalous murder with lots of loose ends, and it gets public because some moron was talking about it in front of a limo driver, then we'll all end up in the minor Eastern European statelet section. This is the kind of thing that gives the department a bad name in Ottawa. We are talking about a PMO file. Well, I have to admit that hurt. The limo drivers probably read about Can Do Canada in the newspaper, just like everyone else, I pointed out sourly. The car pulled up to the terminal. Kennedy made to get out. Here's a threat warning, I said. Mind the gap to the sidewalk. She glared at me and stormed off. I leaned forward and spoke to the driver in French, asking him if there were any protests expected at the airport. He tapped his radio and shrugged. The farmers are protesting at the other terminal today. They've got manure spreaders this time, but this terminal's fine. Kennedy and I waited in silence in the diplomatic VIP lounge. Unremodeled since the 1970s, generations of African dictators and Canadian ministers of amateur sport had padded noiselessly across its plush carpet. It was dark and quiet. I contemplated the possibility of napping through the entire Can-Do Canada visit. Did you get the wheelchair? asked Kennedy, finally breaking the silence. Yes. Pravinsky had been very specific about Senator Buffart and her wheelchair. She was a woman of ample proportions, with bad knees. A wheelchair needed to be on hand in case she needed it, but she hated it if people thought she needed a wheelchair. So it had to be kept out of sight, but ready to be produced instantly if the senator showed signs of going down like a sack of genetically modified canola. Well, replied Kennedy, you didn't need to. We got another message from Ottawa this morning. The senator is coming with the minister, tomorrow. She doesn't fly sked anymore, apparently, only forces metal. I'm sure the stewardesses on Mapleflot are grateful, I replied, trying to lighten the mood. Your hand looks like it's healed nicely, I continued, lathering on the charm. She stood up. I have to make a call, she said as she left. Finally, I saw the members of Candu Canada file down the corridor towards us. I must admit here to one of my many failings as a Canadian diplomat. I suffer from a distaste for the general public that verges on physical revulsion. I can walk with perfect sang-froid into the dungeons of truncheon-wielding local police chiefs and chastise them about the poor hospitality they afford to the marijuana-smoking Canadian teenagers in their possession. But afterwards, when I am escorting said teenagers and their worried parents to the airport for repatriation, I suffer almost uncontrollable urges to leap from the car. I recalled a particularly scarring episode in Russia. I spent three days in Nalchik, principal hellhole of the Capardino Balkar Republic, 
with my intestines under siege from some Caucasian delicacy gone bad, as I wheedled and pleaded for some kids from Uxbridge, Ontario, to be expelled from the country instead of being sent to labor camp. My compatriots had broken a record number of local laws, including the one about not carrying a kilo of Afghani hash stuffed into a shampoo bottle. The teenagers were unashamed. They enjoyed a strong Canadian moral certainty that the laws of wacky foreign countries cannot possibly apply to culturally superior backpackers from the West. They complained bitterly about their three days in jail, about being deprived of their cell phones, and about having their dietary requests ignored by the cooks at the Felix Zhuzhinsky guest home for criminal elements. When I finally got them to Moscow to be shipped home the next day, they immediately asked the concierge where they could get some Afghani weed dripping with black resin, and sneaked out of the hotel. Fortunately, they didn't find any. Of course, I wasn't allowed to mention this when their parents wrote later to the minister complaining about service levels at the Moscow embassy. So you can understand my leeriness as I watched a bevy of special interest group presidents approach. They make their living getting government funding and then using the money to issue press releases, attacking the government bitterly for ignoring them. I see asbestos, beef, lumber, fur, Frankenstein canola, and the associate grand chief, I said to Kennedy. Where are the tar sands people? Oil sands, hissed Kennedy through her teeth. She was still smiling as our fellow citizens approached. They've decided to opt out of the press briefing and the working sessions, you know, work behind the scenes. They don't want to overshadow the rest of the delegation with their issue. That's very nice of them, I said. I looked over at her. How long have you known this? Sorry, just found out, meant to tell you. I wondered how long she'd actually known. Was this why Sleeth had been so jumpy at Violet's party? Had Westcan decided to hire lobbyists so they didn't have to rely on us? Before I could ask Kennedy another question, the delegates were upon us. As I shook hands, my spirit sank further, as I saw that each delegation had brought its own marketing gimmick. George Steele of the Asbestos Federation was wearing a baseball hat that looked like it was actually made of asbestos. It was strangely reminiscent of the fireproof siding on the old general store in my hometown. Natalia Kazanovich of the Prairie Canola Growers Association, who looked like a bigger-haired, slacker-jawed version of Kennedy, had boxes of tasty granola snacks. Pierre Bouchard of the National Trappers League had a brown paper bag containing examples of old leg hole traps and new humane rubber-lined ones. Various other industry representatives and communications people milled around in the background. Apparently the plan, which was news to me, was to demonstrate Canada's new humane traps at our press conference later in the day. Ambassador Glostrom would show how painless they were by putting his hand into one. The last delegate, Mitchell Blackfox of the Canadian Aboriginal Association, had no marketing gimmick, but did have his own advisor. Both were wearing golf shirts, one from St. Andrews and the other from a course in California. We quickly got down to business, putting the local knowledge of the mission at the service of our visitors as we answered questions about per diem expense rates and where the special luggage carousel for golf clubs could be found. We whisked our delegation to the cars and back to the mission for the kickoff briefing. I waited for everyone to get settled in our meeting room. I looked down at the talking points Dunscap had sent from Ottawa. Oh well, I thought, and launched into them. Welcome to Can Do Canada's mission briefing session. Our first item on the agenda is a gripping presentation on the European Union's constitution by Cornelia Frett. It should help us figure out how to deal with our common enemy. Its catchy title is Punching Above Our Weight, How Canadians Can Influence the European Commission, European Parliament, the Council of Ministers, and other key European institutions. So far, so good, I thought. I turned to hand the conch to Cornelia, only to discover she'd failed to check whether the overhead projector was plugged in. Cornelia grabbed the projector's cord, pulled it out of the extension cord, and jammed it in again. Nothing happened. 
Kennedy stood up and strode to the wall. You have to plug in both ends, she observed, jamming the other end of the extension cord into the wall. The projector came on, but our meeting momentum had evaporated, allowing our real enemy to seize the initiative. Are you the ambassador? demanded Natalia from the canola industry, glaring at me through narrowed eyes, like she suspected me of replacing her genetically enhanced canola product with organic olive oil. Canadians always expect their ambassadors to be as attentive as mutual fund salesmen, and don't like to be fobbed off on people who know what's really going on. I happen to know from reading the sticky notes on Lucille's desk that the ambassador was, at that moment, entertaining Len Sleeth and another oil executive from Calgary at a Russian Banya bathhouse across town. Not a traditional Brussels entertainment, the Banya had nonetheless become popular with the influx of new Moscow money. You get naked with directors general, while visiting Russian gas executives beat you with birch branches before you retire for prawns, Russian champagne, and massages. Some of the oil guys thought a morning spa would be good for their jet lag. I smiled my most insincere smile back at Natalia. No, the ambassador has been called away to a rather hot meeting, where he plans to bear all and beat up on some key Brussels decision makers. That was one for the diary, I thought to myself. Our guests viewed me suspiciously. I noted that they had chosen seats together, across the table from us. Not only had Cornelia failed to seat random trade commissioners between them to keep them apart, but she had also ignored my advice to put them in separate hotels so they couldn't conspire against us at breakfast. I bet the ambassador is working on detar sands. This meeting is a facade, said Pierre, snapping a pencil bitterly in one of his old leghold traps. It's the same old bait and switch, said the associate grand chief knowingly. I bet the oil guys are getting the red carpet treatment somewhere. In the foreign service, you quickly learn to accept insults with the bland smile and dissimulation of a sultan's eunuch. Kandu Canada was announced by the prime minister as one of his personal priorities, I said. The ambassador takes your mission extremely seriously and will be rejoining the program as soon as things cool down at his meeting. And the minister himself will be arriving tomorrow to wrap things up. Dine en ville means we're invited to the ambassador's residence, right? said George suddenly, looking up distractedly from his program. Cool. I nodded sagely. I would deal later with the embarrassing non-legacy of George's high school French teacher. Most Canadians think dinner invitations to the official residence are guaranteed under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and George would not be happy to learn that Dine en ville was our euphemism for fend for yourselves downtown. Cornelia finally got the projector plugged in and the computer attached to it. She did a creditable job explaining how the European Union worked, although she skipped some of the more embarrassing bits, like how the Canada Committee at the European Parliament was packed with Hungarian crypto-fascists after the Dutch Liberal Democrats decided they wanted to be on the Brazil Committee instead. She also took us through the seating plan for the lunch briefing, which she had tried to make look more important through the liberal use of capital letters and acronyms. She displayed a slide with a baffling variety of circles, triangles, and squares. The Strategic Seating Plan, or SSP, allocates one member of the media community, or MMC, or Key Opinion Leader, or KOL, and the green circles, to each Can-Do Canada Advocate, or CDCA, the blue squares. The SSP places them beside each other at lunch, where they can establish personal links, and the MMCs can hear the CDCAs tell their stories in their own words. The MOVE triangles are mission staff, available to support at any time. Cornelia paused and looked at the group. I suppressed my earlier misgivings about the scheme. There's an old Foreign Service saying that no one has ever been posted to the Detroit consulate for not returning a journalist's phone call. It was tempting the gods to deliberately gather journalists in one place and give them unfettered access to naive 
and garrulous Frankenstein canola reps from the home country. Anyway, it was too late now. Everyone else was keen on the plan. Perhaps I was excessively pessimistic. Cornelia wrapped up just in time for the ambassador to arrive. Glostrom looked florid, but I couldn't tell if he'd spent insufficient time in the Banya's cooling tanks, drunk too much Russian champagne, or requested the special massage from the Russian hostesses. He moved around the room, shaking hands and squeezing upper arms with a broad smile. Cornelia quickly brought him up to speed and then broached the leghold trap scheme. We've planned an impromptu gesture for you, she said enthusiastically. The new rubber-lined leghold traps are so humane that you can put your hand in one. Pierre jumped to his feet, primed a trap, and jammed his hand in. There was an alarming snap, but Pierre smiled right through it. Make sure you put all four fingers in at the same time, and right in the middle, he said with a grin. You hardly feel it. The ambassador looked doubtful, but Cornelia plowed ahead. McGregor will have one in his case. All you have to do is ask for it, and McGregor will whip it out and put it on the table. Then we'll all clap. The ambassador watched Cornelia try the trap, then did it himself. He seemed reassured. Anything to help, he said. This would even look good on TV. It was time to go. I stepped past Kennedy at the back of the room, grabbed a brown paper bag of traps marked new from the table beside her, and headed for the car. Pravinsky appeared at the elevator. I didn't think you were coming for this, I said, stuffing the traps into my briefcase. Wouldn't miss it. Since the Olympics went pro, you don't get to see amateurs in action very often anymore. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 14, Ambushed at a Press Conference. Kravinsky and I entered the restaurant together and walked upstairs to the private room. Shouldn't you be more worried about the media? I asked. I was under the impression that political staff had an almost monomaniacal concern about newspaper coverage. Nope, replied Kravinsky nonchalantly. The chances of Canadian media covering an international story are almost zero. They've closed their overseas bureaus and use random stringers now. The lunch began well. The Canadian delegates and their new media chums seemed to be getting along well. George was showing his asbestos hat around the table. Natalia was telling everyone how she fed genetically modified canola products to her children every day. And the associate grand chief had the attention of even the most jaded media types as he told stories about how important fur trapping was to his home community. Pierre was perhaps getting carried away with his new friends. I heard him telling one of the scribblers from a London paper about how he once found a mother lynx stuck in a trap someone had left set up out of season, but that the kittens were probably fine since they grew up so fast. Then he started to tell everyone what to do when you find a marten frozen stiff in a trap. I moved away. Some things are better not to know about, and when that story appeared in London, I wanted to be able to say I was as surprised about it as everyone else. Glostrom stood up and moved to the podium. Dunscap's talking points sounded fine in both languages, and Glostrom's French was quite good for a former cabinet minister. I breathed a sigh of relief. Things were going swimmingly, and I returned to my seat beside Kravinsky to eat my own lunch. Glostrom began his carefully scripted, spontaneous anecdote. You know, he said, moving out from behind the podium to appear more informal, the new leghold traps are so humane, they don't even hurt the soft skin of diplomats, he said with a fake chuckle. He called for a trap, and I rushed forward and gave him one from my bag. Just as rehearsed, he pried it open, clicked the mechanism in place, and smiled at the crowd. Like a good showman, he had the attention of everyone. The journalists craned their necks and reached for their cameras. Here we go, said Glostrom with a confident grin, and he jammed four fingers right into the middle of the trap. Glostrom's grin held for a split second. Then he leapt into the air and shrieked like he'd been branded by a Syrian interrogator. He clawed frantically at the trap, trying to get it off his paw, 
probably much like a mother lynx would have done. Flashes flashed, and chairs fell over backwards as journalists scrambled to get better shots. Glostrom continued to leap and scream in a most unambassador-like way. Pierre leaped to his feet. Tabernouche! It's one of the old traps! Who gave him dat? I looked in panic into my briefcase. It was full of traps, and none of them had rubber-lined jaws. The mind boggled. I looked up to see Glostrom and Pierre staring angrily at me from the podium, and every other head in the room turning in my direction. If I had a cyanide pill hidden in a molar, I probably would have bitten into it right then. But instead, the doors behind Glostrom burst open, apparently kicked in by a pair of Doc Martin boots. The man wearing them was dressed in black jeans and a black blazer. He looked athletic and seemed to emanate a kind of intense energy. He was in his mid-thirties. His hair was stylishly spiky, but his premature grayness gave him an air of maturity. I moaned inwardly. It was Ian Culloden. A pack of activists stood behind him, along with their camera crew. Uh, muttered Glostrom. This is, this is a private. Culloden ignored Glostrom and stepped into the room. The activists fanned out. One was a young woman whose hair was dyed that distinctive red that German women seemed to like. She would have been attractive if not for her tattoos, facial piercings, and a black tank top that said RAGE in blood-red letters on the front. Beside her was a giant woman with a shaved head who would have made the Belarusian women's wrestling team wet their tights. In her massive hand was a tiny video camera, which she raised to capture whatever was about to happen next. "'Attention, everyone!' shouted Culloden in posh English. The ambassador's face turned stoically towards him. He was learning ambassadorships aren't always as plush as people say. I accuse the Canadian ambassador and his government of crimes against the planet. We won't be fooled by your parlor tricks, ambassador. I have here top-secret Canadian briefing notes on exporting more asbestos to poor countries, hiding evidence of the dangers of genetically modified food from citizens, and exploiting Aboriginal people to protect the horrors of the fur trade. He paused and brandished sheaves of paper. Everyone stared at him in rapt attention. He's good, whispered Pravinsky in my ear. He's got the whole room focused on him. Culloden went on. Even worse, I also have categorical proof that the real purpose of the so-called Can-Do Canada trade mission is a secret deal to export Canada's tar sands oil to Europe. Think of it. Giant tar sands mines, thousands of miles of pipelines, and oil tankers traveling through Europe's most sensitive waterways, carrying climate change poison to the heart of Europe. He tossed his sheaves of briefing notes to the journalists. We all sat spellbound as he began the next part of his act. Sometimes entire postings passed without so much excitement. He stepped towards the ambassador, whose retreat was cut off by the podium and the red-haired woman. The ambassador looked terrified, but tried to put a bold face on the situation. Glostrom cleared his throat. This is unacceptable. Culloden interrupted. Canada's crimes against the planet are what is unacceptable. He pulled another document out of his bag. We officially charge Canada in the court of global opinion with being environmental criminal of the year. He held out the document, which instinctively, Glostrom reached out to accept. As he did so, the red-haired woman produced a two-liter jug from her bag and poured a thick, black liquid from behind over Glostrom's head. Culloden turned to the crowd triumphantly. Real Canadian tar sands oil. On behalf of our planet, the Green Alliance says you will not get away with your crimes. The ambassador stared straight ahead his arms at his side as the goo dripped down his face, waiting for the ordeal to end. The Green Alliance videographer zoomed in, and a dozen camera flashes went off from journalists, Green Alliance publicity people, and even hotel busboys with their camera phones. I even felt sorry for Glostrom. Not even being a cabinet minister had been this bad. I looked around for security, 
but of course we hadn't booked any. Cornelia and Sherlock were back at the mission, updating the security plan. I noticed Pierre prudently backing away from the ambassador. I tried to stand up, but Pravinsky put his arm on my shoulder and whispered it was too late. I saw him slide down his chair and disappear under the tablecloth. Suddenly, the rest of Culloden's people produced big plastic water guns and headed into the crowd, spraying black squirts of oil at every Canadian they could find. Kennedy appeared out of nowhere and strode towards the ambassador. Culloden threw a jug of black goo right into her chest, splattering everywhere. Glostrom turned to try to run away, but got his feet tangled in a microphone cord. I watched as he fell, his face banging off the podium heavily as he went down. I quickly slid down my chair and joined Pravinsky under the table. The journalists were clustered around Culloden, shouting questions. I saw Pierre sprinting from the room, pursued by shouting Green Alliance activists in their squirt guns. A trade commissioner was cowering in a corner, begging for mercy, as two green gunmen stood over him, pumping their guns dry onto his ugly brown suit. Through a gap in the tablecloth, I saw the red-haired woman run up to Natalia Kazanovich and raise her squirt gun. Instead of running away, Natalia shifted her feet, then she threw her weight behind a savage punch that landed right on the bridge of the woman's nose and knocked her to the floor. Gotta love Saskatchewan girls, said Ravinsky. Finally, Culloden shouted something, and the shouts and screams died away as the Green Alliance activists ran out of the room. I reached out from under the tablecloth and grabbed one of the briefing notes that Culloden had thrown to the journalists. Through the oil, I could see that it looked genuine. In fact, I saw one of Dunscap's spelling mistakes that I had circled three times, but which he had never changed. Then I looked more closely. There was a new paragraph entitled Negotiating Position, with a bullet that said, Asbestos position can be conceded to obtain main objective, access for Canadian oil exports to Europe. I flipped through the pile. On the note about the oil sands, a bullet said, Risks of oil spills in sensitive European waterways much greater than we have admitted publicly. Downplay environmental risk. It was strange and alarming. I didn't recognize the words, and not even Dunscap was stupid enough to write something like that down on paper. Pravinsky peeked out from under the table. I could hear angry voices as the Can-Do Canada delegates realized it was safe and came together in the middle of the room. Outrage at the Greens quickly turned to anger that the Canadian mission had allowed the disaster to happen. Kravinsky looked at me in the semi-darkness under the table. You know, he said, I was wrong. You might get Canadian media coverage after all. I showed him Culloden's briefing notes and pointed out that although the font and format were ours, the messages looked doctored. Jesus, said Kravinsky, grabbing the papers. This is getting serious. This wasn't supposed to be all about the oil sands, at least not in public. He pulled his Blackberry out of his pocket and dialed someone. He rolled out from under the table and left the room, ignoring the can-do delegates as they shouted complaints as he walked past. Kennedy was holding the ambassador's arm as he moved slowly out the door, holding his head. There was nothing else to do, so I crawled out from under the safety of the table and stood up. The can-do Canada delegates saw me. It was like the cafeteria in high school. Once the first one threw an apple core at me, it would be all over. So I strode boldly towards them. Quick! Before they come back and finish the job! I shouted, steering the delegates to our cars. I ignored their questions and did my best to stampede them down the stairs, through the lobby, and into any car that had a maple leaf on the dashboard. That wraps up episode 12 of the Tarzan's Diplomat. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at khalliday at tarzansdiplomat.com. If you're enjoying the story, please tell a friend or leave a review on Amazon.ca. And join us again next week via iTunes for episode 13, where McGregor tries to figure out how everything has gone so horribly wrong. <laughs>